profound prayer. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and sung and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Our scripture passage this morning is taken from the fourth chapter of Luke, verses 21 through 30. Let us listen to the word of the Lord. Then he, Jesus, began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine all over the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them, except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Lord God, on this day, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, and may all our words give you glory. In the name of Christ, amen. 
So it is ironic that on the morning we ordain and install 20 duly elected members of Westminster as officers for our congregation, I would preach on the subject what the church cannot do. As these elders and deacons embark on three years of service with all the energy, intelligence, and imagination and love that they have, leave it to me to use a title like this on a day like this. But there is seriousness to this title, and there's hopefulness as well. Let's look at the seriousness first. In the gospel lesson today, Jesus has begun his ministry by reading before his hometown synagogue words from Isaiah the prophet, which had stirred Jews for centuries before him and would soon have the same effect on Christians. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he said, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to let the oppressed go free to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord's favor. From the time Jesus adopted this clarion call as thematic for his work and ministry, these stirring words have led Christians of all stripes to movements for social reform to prison ministry, to special care for the disabled, the impoverished, the oppressed. In the three years of his ministry, Jesus spoke no more compelling words than these to inspire care on the part of the church and on the part of individual Christians for the least, the last, and the lost. In addition, his words have given birth across the centuries to attempts on the part of the church to reform or even dismantle structures of society that hold people down and back. Yet as soon as Jesus pronounces these words, he seems to point to limits on what the church will be able to do, on what he will be able to do. Truly I tell you, he says... No prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. Then he adds, there were many widows in Israel at the time of Elijah. Yet when there was a severe famine, Elijah was sent only to a widow at Zarephath. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Jesus seems to be saying that even though the Spirit of the Lord has anointed him as God's Son, he will not be able to do his work among the people with whom he is the closest, and that like the prophets before him, there is only so much healing he will be able to bring. Watching this scene from the vantage of 2,000 years of history, It follows for us that a world in which sin and evil, death and disease, tragedy and and tyranny and treachery retain a great deal of their power, the church will never be able to reach every human being, to heal every illness, to eliminate every form of injustice, 
to bring reconciliation to every personal, familial, political, tribal, religious, class, ethnic, national, or global conflict. Just as Jesus, even as the Son of God, lived within limits during his lifetime, the church today lives within similar limits. We can only do what we can do. The rest will come in the final providential reign of God. But even when we accept, however reluctantly, what the church cannot do, there is one thing, one thing that the church retains the power to do. And that is to bear witness to the word that God has given us. A word, Jesus Christ, which in the end is a word of hope. As many of you know, an ancient schedule of biblical texts called the lectionary designates four passages to be read for each Sunday of the year. An Old Testament lesson, a reading from the Psalms, a reading from the Gospels, and then a reading from the letters, usually a letter of Paul, but not always. Normally at Westminster, we read only one of these lessons per service. Today, we have read one and heard the choir present a second. The gospel lesson that we heard is stirring. Good news to the poor, release to the captives, let the oppressed go free. The Old Testament lesson for today, which we have not heard, is an equally stirring call to the prophet prophet Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Jeremiah was called to bear a word of warning to people he loved, but people who did not want to hear such a word. In this endeavor, Jeremiah was hardly what we would call successful. For after much speaking and warning, the people before whom Jeremiah spoke were carried off into exile. They had simply refused to heed his warning. But the word the Lord had spoken to Jeremiah kept Jeremiah going. It kept him speaking. It kept him issuing his warning even in his darkest days. And that word has been passed down to and through the church and remains alive for us today. When we, like Jeremiah, are seeking to do the right thing, when we are seeking to say the right thing, when we are seeking to live according to the moral code that comes from how we have been shaped and formed by the glimpses of God we have received, we can hear and take to heart the words that Jeremiah heard and took to heart. I formed you. I knew you. 
I consecrated you. As for Jeremiah, so for us. The word we have been given from the Lord is on our lips and it's in our hearts. No matter what else is happening. Another of the church's words assigned for today that we haven't read today is equally eloquent and very familiar. You have heard these words at weddings, particularly when two young people in love present themselves at the altar. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Now, the Apostle Paul, as I have shared with you before, didn't write these words for a wedding service. He wrote them for a congregation that he had founded and and then left, and which, in his absence, was tearing itself apart over any number of issues. In this church, there were class differences and divisions among its members. There were differences in religious backgrounds and in basic understandings of the faith. There were clashes over which leader was more eloquent and popular and attractive. There were differences over marriage and divorce and sexual mores. There was conflict over the roles of men and women in the church. There were disputes concerning whose spiritual gifts were superior. There was conflict over how the church should relate to the world. And there were differences over whether the boundaries, the admission standards for the church should be strict and high or porous. Paul was deeply aware of what the church in its fallen state could not do. But still he knew the church had the words with which to share the word of God. So even in the midst of conflict and division and seeming hopelessness, he dared to speak the words he had been given. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. There is much the church cannot do. But we can always bear witness with our words to the word that we have been given. Now thus far, almost all the words from the Bible that we've used in this sermon have been, in this service, have been eloquent and memorable. Release to the captives. Before you were born, I consecrated you. The greatest of these is love. But sometimes the words we in the church are given do not quite rise to this level of being memorable. I think that the psalm that is assigned for reading this Sunday is in that category. 
Now, I know that the choir has done an excellent and a beautiful job of singing it. But if we just read the words ourselves, they don't always remain with us as easily as some of the other words we've heard today. The careful eyes of scholars in reading Psalm 71 recognize in this psalm an assemblage, I'm quoting someone, an assemblage of snippets from other psalms. That means whoever it was that put the Psalter together however many thousands of years years ago went out on Google and typed a few phrases in and got a phrase and pulled it over here into the Word document and that was verse 1 and then went out on Google again and pulled a phrase over here. And if you really read that psalm, you kind of realize that each sentence is not necessarily closely connected to the sentence that follows. It is an assemblage of verses. And it can sound like a hodgepodge of religious phrases. It can, in fact, sound like what we've heard before, what we expect to hear in church, what we expect the minister to say. If you In you, O Lord, I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. If it sounds like we've heard it all before, it may be because we have. But even though these phrases may not be original with this psalm, Neither are they casual or shallow. Listen to some of them again. Slowly. Quietly. One by one. I even want you to close your eyes. And bow your heads. If you promise to wake up (laughs) when we're done. Just try it. And listen, listen. Rescue me, O God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and the cruel. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord. From my youth. Upon you I have leaned from my birth. It was you who took me from my mother's womb. My friends, these are not necessarily the most eloquent words of Scripture, but they are words that can speak to us no matter what is going on in our lives or outside our lives. One of the great Protestant hymns speak to the power of the words we have been given. In the English translation it reads, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One 
little word shall fail him. A few summers ago, as I've shared with you before, my wife and I got to spend three weeks in Hawaii and on the beach and under the sun and under a canopy. I did a lot of reading. I stumbled across, of all people that summer, in a book I'd brought from the office, Machiavelli's The Prince. Now, Machiavelli, as many of you know, is the, it's the Renaissance piece, is the theoretician of the dirtiest, most pragmatic politics ever practiced. That's what I was reading on the beach in Hawaii. <laughs> Go figure. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It was a good vacation. Uh, but in reading The Prince, I stumbled across a paragraph in which Machiavelli, the author, describes what he gets out of reading classical literature. Not the Bible, but classical literature. This is what he says. When evening arrives, I return home and go into my study, into my library. And at the threshold, I take off my everyday clothes full of mud and filth. And I put on regal and courtly garments and decorously, and decorously dressed anew, I enter the courts of ancient people where lovingly received by them, I feed myself on the food that is mine alone and for which I was born. Where I'm not ashamed to speak of them, to speak with them, and to ask them about reasons for their actions. And they in their humanity respond to me. And for four hours at a time, I do not feel any boredom. I forget every difficulty. I do not fear poverty. I am not terrified by death. I transfer myself unto them completely. This is what he gets from reading the words of the classics. We can get that same thing from the words God has given us. Whether the words we have been given come to us in a series of snippets we've heard before, whether they are a charge to build and to plant, whether they are commissioned to preach good news to the poor, or whether they're a hymn extolling God's love which rings true to human love, what we study and speak is the Word. The words from God are food that is ours alone and for which we were born. It is food under which we can transfer ourselves completely. The words are what fell the prince of darkness grim. No matter what else is going on around us, their study and speaking is what the church can do. Amen.